This morning we're going to be in Psalm 139 for our study of God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn to Psalm 139. If you're new to the Bible, um, maybe we just gave you one this morning. You can find the page number in the bulletin or book of Psalms is pretty easy to find. It's in the middle. Job is on the left and Proverbs is on the right. My goal had been to finish Romans 11 before summer started so we could take a break from Romans because of the chaos of schedules and we wouldn't be consistent and all of that sort of thing. And I didn't meet that goal. We almost got done with Romans 11, but we're in summer anyway and there's all kinds of scheduling issues. So we're going to hold off on Romans for a time until we get some continuity, some sanity going on. And so I could preach on whatever I wanted to preach on today, except Romans 11. And I chose Psalm 139 because it's one of my very favorite psalms, and it's a favorite among Christians, and it's very, very important what we learn in Psalm 139. So please turn there if you're not already there. Psalm 139, at least in the bulletin, we're calling this message, Theology for Life. And I don't know about you, but some people, when they read that, they think, well, this will be an irrelevant sermon. Because really, what does theology have to do with life? Theology has to do with stuffy dust-collecting books for theologians, and uh, I want to learn about my life. I want you to teach me, Pastor, how to live a successful Christian life. Certainly, I don't need to know about theology. That's for those other kinds of people, not for me. I love Psalm 139 because it teaches anything but that way of thinking. Psalm 139 is a favorite for me because it has such profound theology, that is, teachings about who God is, and yet it doesn't leave it there. Theology is not meant to be left there. It takes those, those lofty, profound truths about who God is, and then it takes it and applies it to our lives. I would even suggest to you that's what we should always do with theology. Uh, the Bible is not a theology textbook. It tells us about God. It's God's revelation of Himself. But specifically what we see so often in the Bible is who God is as it would relate to His people for our benefit and for our joy. And so that's what we'll see in Psalm 139. And I absolutely can't wait because of the impact that it can have in the ministry here and in our lives. Maybe an opening quotation regarding this from Walt Kaiser, who was just here a number of weeks ago. While the focus of this psalm is on the Lord Himself, these attributes, like His all-knowing nature, His all-present nature, His all-powerful nature, are applied in a way that reveals who our Lord is in relationship to His people. He's just saying what I said, but better. <laughs> Great theology. Big God theology, I like to call it and showing us how who this great God is relates to us as His people. And that's what we'll focus on today. Profoundly theological and amazingly useful. Anything but irrelevant. As we look at Psalm 139, you'll see it breaks down into four sections rather easily. It naturally breaks into four sections. So let's label those four sections by calling them four life-changing observations. Four life-changing observations about the greatness of God in our lives. Four life-changing observations about God and His greatness in our lives. Number one, the Lord knows me. 
That's the first observation we're going to make. The Lord knows me. It's in the first six verses. Let's begin working our way through. Please notice how intensely personal it is. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. Verse 2, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before the world, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together or comprehensively or exhaustively. Did you see the emphasis in verse 1? Known me. Verse 2, discern my thoughts. Know when. Verse 3, search out, acquainted with. Verse 4, know it all together. The psalmist is saying, my life before you, God, is not only an open book, all of it, but there's this emphasis on personal knowledge. He's not merely saying, God, you're all-knowing. He's saying, God, you're all-knowing in a, in, in a way that shows that you care for me. Personal. And that's what he means when he says, no, 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 over and over again, knowledge that is personal, that is uniquely personal. And remember, the Bible uses this knowing idea quite often. He's not just saying, I know the facts. He knows the facts, but he not only knows the facts, but he actually cares. The idea of intimacy or caring or concern. Psalm 1.6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, He knows about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, but He's saying He knows, He cares. Matthew 7.23, Jesus says to unbelievers, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus knew all about them, enough to evaluate them, but He says, I never knew you. Or... John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own. John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He cares. He's concerned. Yes, he's great, but he cares. Theology is practical. He goes on to say in verse 5, let's keep working our way through it, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So the idea is protection. You're caring about me in front of me where I'm going. You're watching my back, so to speak, in their older vernacular. That's what he's saying, what we would say. And lay your hand upon me. God is protecting. God is blessing. Throughout the Old Testament so many times, we see the hand of God on someone protecting them. Even Moses where God was going to show him just a glimpse of His glory because no man sees God and lives. And God is going to show him just a glimpse. Just from, from the backside, He's going to allow him to, to see God uniquely like no one has before. And what does it say in the text regarding that? Exodus thirty three twenty two. I will cover you with My hand until I pass by. I am going to protect you. And here we see it in the context of God knows His children. He cares. He's concerned to the point of even protecting us with His own hand. It's a great and encouraging picture of this great God. The all-knowing God knows me. That's what I wrote down. It's amazing. 
the all-knowing, omniscient God knows me in a caring sense? This is amazing. It's so amazing. Look what the psalmist says in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You know, we would say this blows my mind. I can't, I can hardly believe this. And I would suggest to you, pastorally, if you don't ever feel that kind of sense of this is more than I can wrap my mind around, that the God of all the universe cares about me, I would suggest you, you, you need to think more deeply about who God is. It's one thing if God is nothing special and He knows you. We're talking about the great God of creation who speaks and things are. This great God who's powerful and mighty. Look what He's done throughout history, how He's shown His might and His strength and be impressed and to be impressed with all that He's done and then for Him to say, I know my own. I know my sheep. Shall I pause? <laughs> if you're not feeling a sense of verse 6, it would just be very healthy for you to maybe be, begin reading your Bible a little bit differently. Maybe reading your Bible, asking yourself the question, Who is God? And what has He done? Just who, who is He? If we're not coming to verse Six and feeling that sense ourselves, maybe our God is, is too tame, too small. But when we see Him for who He really is, and then we learn He cares about us, He knows us personally, we should be saying, this is too high! This is too amazing for me to, to even grasp! You know, oftentimes we sing at Omaha Bible Church about the holiness of God. Whether it's a contemporary song or an old favorite hymn, Holy, 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 one of my favorite old songs. And oftentimes I'll bring it up because I just can't help myself because of the teacher in me. I want to say, now, remember what we're singing. We're not just singing sinless, sinless, sinless. Yes, indeed, God is sinless, sinless, sinless. But the, the basic idea of holiness is different is unique, is, how about, distant, far away. We're singing, if you will, different, different, different is the Lord God Almighty. Because He's Almighty and we're not. The angels in the throne room of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6 are saying, holy, holy, holy. They're not just thinking sinless, 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 although they're certainly thinking that. Beyond that, He is utterly and completely different from all His creation. Theologians say this is God's transcendence. He's beyond reach, beyond comprehension. He's huge. He's big. He's different. He's the Creator that makes Him uniquely holy in comparison to us. We need to think about the transcendence of God because then, when we read Psalm 139 and we see, He knows me. <laughs> We find ourselves doing what the psalmist does in verse 6. It's too, this is too, too tall for me. I can't even, I can't imagine this. 
The great, magnificent, transcendent God is also, as theologians would say, imminent. He's close. He cares. Theology for life. Don't listen to that liar who tells you theology is not practical. It's the bedrock foundation for us here. The psalmist praising God, worshiping God. But even for right thinking, for stable living. How are you going to get through the tough stuff? The great and amazing transcendent God of the universe. He knows me. He cares about me. It's awesome. It's awesome. Makes me think about Paul in Galatians, and I'm just paraphrasing, where he talks about we not only know God, but God knows, more importantly, He knows us. If I were walking down the street, if I were to tell you I know such and such a famous person, you might be impressed. But I think it would be more impressive if you and I were walking down the street and the famous person were walking toward us, and he said, hey, Pat, how's it going? You'd be like, dude, (laughs) he knows you. Now, that's not exactly what the psalmist is getting at, but maybe it at least forces us to think a little bit differently. It's one thing for us to gather together and say, we know God. That's good and important and right and biblical. But what we're gathering together today saying is, God knows us. That's theologically grounded. Commit yourself to knowing and learning Theology. Maybe I need to give a qualifier. Good theology. (laughs) Profound, transcendent theology. Everybody's a theologian. Just not all of us are good at being theologians. Oprah is America's theologian, right? Most Americans learn their theology from Oprah. And she is a bad theologian, okay? She's taught enough heresy and promoted it enough that we wouldn't want to acknowledge her theology But please think theologically in a good sense about a great and magnificent and powerful God who spoke everything into being, whose sovereignty rules over all. And don't stop there. And He knows me. Wow. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It rocks my world application you can trust him right just a little bit of application let's move on to a second life-changing observation about the greatness of god as it relates to my life and your life would be number two the lord is with me verses 7 to 12 the lord is with me Now, there's a little bit of debate here, and we can't be certain either way because some read this and suggest to us that he's speaking as if because he's in sin, the psalmist is David, and he's in sin, he's trying to get away from God, and he can't get away. The text doesn't tell us that. It might be the other. I think it's more likely, more rhetorical. If he were to try to get away from this God, this God cares so much and is omnipresent, and therefore you can't get away from him. We'll apply it both ways because we can't be certain either way. But I tend to think he's just making a point even using his rhetorical device. Let's start working our way through it. It says in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Implied answer, you know, it's, I, I can't get it, I can't get go away from your spirit. Verse uh, 7 goes on to say, or where, where shall I flee from your presence? I, I, I can't, it's impossible. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What's his point? If I go as high as I can fathom, you're there. And if I go as low as I can fathom, Sheol, the place of the dead, the graveyard, you don't go any lower than that. No matter if I go all the way up or all the way down, you're there. I don't think he's talking about hell with Sheol here. He may be in other contexts, but not here. He's just talking about as high or as low. If he is talking about hell, God is there. Read Revelation chapter 14 and they're suffering in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I don't think that's the case here, but please see, his point is, I can't get away from you, God. You're there to care for me, to protect me. You know me, you love me. So if I go all the way up or all the way down, which assumes everything in between, you're there. Verse 9 even broadens it more. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, then he goes on to say, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What's he getting at when he says the, the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea? The wings of the morning, the east. The sea, from his perspective, the Mediterranean Sea, the west. I go all the way up, north if you will, all the way down, south if you will, all the way to the right, east, and all the way to the west, and guess what? You're there! You're everywhere! I cannot escape your caring presence. This is theology applied to life. He is omnipresent, but it applies to his life and where he's living. As far as the east is from the west, you can't escape God's caring hand. Even there, the Jews are known for being afraid of the sea. It's unknown. It's uncharted water, so to speak. So even when I go to the scary places, the unknown places, the places I have phobias about. You're there. And you're not only there, you're there leading me. I love the effect with your hand. No, not just any hand. Your right hand shall hold me. Used again and again in Scripture. For the strong hand. Exodus 15.6 Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The strength of God. I think his left hand is probably pretty strong. <laughs> but the effect is, you know, normal people are right-handed. <laughs> My dad was left-handed. He smudged everything he wrote with a flare pen. Anyway, we all know that God is right-handed now, by the way. But anyway, we won't go any further than that. He's making his point. Even the hand which is most likely the strongest, the right hand, because we use it for more things, if we're right-handed, he's saying, he's using that hand for protection. Even when you go to where you're afraid of going, he's protecting you, this big omnipresent God, with his strength and his power. In other words, therefore, you can trust him. You can trust him. He's close. My mind races to Romans 8, verse 38 when it comes to this as it would be applied to our redemption. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Strong in His hand. Isn't it good? Tell me theology is irrelevant. It's what we need. This great God cares about me and He protects me. Don't listen to somebody who says, well, I need need something practical for my life. I don't need theology. They don't know what they need. They're confused. Lovingly and graciously give them theology. You say, but, but my, my, my problem isn't theological. My problem is actually practical. I have this phobia. Your problem is theological. Who are we talking about? This great and amazing God who's in charge and in control, as we will see, holding with His right hand, even in the scary places. This is great for us. This is so helpful for us. I remember back in the, probably in the 80s, Bette Midler sang that song, God is watching us from a distance. I'm going to sing it for you now. (laughs) I'm not going to. I wish I didn't know that song, but the mind is a terrible thing and it's locked in my memory until I go to glory and get a new mind. Well, God might be watching Bette Midler from a distance, but He's not watching me from a distance. If you're the child of God, He is holding you with His right hand. He is, yes, indeed, transcendent and distant, but He's also close and imminent. He cares about us personally. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. You say, I'm not afraid of the ocean, but I'm afraid of dark. Okay, here we go. Verse 11. (laughs) And the light about me is night. Even when everything's upside down. Verse 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. His point is profound. God is above it all. He's God. And not only is He God, He's the God who cares. I hope you teach your children theology. And children, I hope you teach your parents theology when they're afraid because you don't know what's lurking in the darkness. Well, you might not, but God knows. And He's God. It's helpful. (laughs) It's practical. I like what A.W. Tozer said about this this omnipresence reality of God in this text. He said, it would take considerable effort to misunderstand this. (laughs) You'd have to work really hard to miss this. Sadly, some people work really hard to miss this. Well, to me it means, you know, or whatever. One of the greatest things you can do is to commit yourself by the grace of God to knowing who God is and knowing how great He is 
and meditating upon his greatness. Remember in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is praying for the Christians at Colossae in that city. And one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things he prays for is that they would be increasing in their knowledge of God. That's part of what we do as Christians. We're increasing in our knowledge of God, not just so we get fat heads and cold hearts, but so that we can understand who He is and His greatness because that is applicable to us in the way we live our lives. This great God knows me. This great great God cares. I just want so badly as a pastor for you to get this. We're supposed to do the one another's, so we try to do those. We try to help each other and comfort each other and love each other and we try to forgive each other. These are good and important things for us to do. But at the end of the day, we can't have those things be what I'm going to call functional saviors. We, we can't have those things act as God for us. At the end of the day, it's God. And this is why in 2 Corinthians early on it says He is the God of all comfort. It's got to come back to Him. It's got to come back to Him. Now, this is encouraging, but let's just say the psalmist is living in sin and he's wanting to get away from God. It would apply there. Listen to what Proverbs 5.21 says. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Context of Proverbs chapter 5 is sexual purity. God is watching us, but not from a distance. You can't escape the presence of God. He's there. Context of sexual purity. So it's a motivator for comfort in the positive sense. It's a motivator in the sense of fear in another sense. You know what? I ought not be doing that because I'm not all alone. He's right there the whole time. I've said before to younger people, you know what? Would you be uncomfortable doing certain things if your dad were in the room? Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? God is in the room. And you're a fool to think He's not. So we are motivated practically by the great theological truth of omnipresence. Proverbs chapter 5. Solomon was so wise, he applied theology to life and saw it as practical. All right, let's move on to number three. A third life-changing observation about the greatness of God in our lives would be the Lord has a plan. The Lord has a plan for me. The Lord has a plan for me. It's not just a sketch either. We're going to see it starts before you're born. I love this. How about verse 13? For, for you, you formed my inward parts. You, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's using this, this figurative language for God's sovereign oversight over the natural processes of life. 
God is overseeing what happens even in the mother's womb. That's what's being emphasized here. Sovereign superintendence. Verse 14, I praise You, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Your works. My soul knows it very well. I'm praising God because He has a plan that is personal. Even to the point where He's talking about in the womb where no one else can see what's going on there, God is working His plan for the life. Verse 15, My frame was not hidden from You when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance before anybody could see anything happening. Pre-ultrasounds, right? Pre-pre-ultrasounds. And there's still mystery today even though we have ultrasound. You know who transcends the mystery? God, because God is supernaturally, sovereignly overseeing the process. Wow. Verse 16 then says, In your book, please don't miss this. If you miss everything else, please don't miss this. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. I put four stars next to that. Probably deserves a few more. Unformed substance. Let's put it in these terms. From embryo to funeral procession. God has a plan. And didn't He say, every one of them, the days that were formed for me? They're written down. How about that? You say, that's scary. What's more scary is not believing that. I don't know how you live if you don't believe that. It is scary to think that we have a sovereign God It's scary because it lets us all know that we're not sovereign. But it's what gets rid of fear. My every day is numbered by God and they were numbered before I ever breathed my first breath. This is huge implications and ramifications on how I live my life. I can live boldly for the glory of God. I can also die well, hopefully by the grace of God. It was John Wesley who said that Christians are to die well. Yeah. Because I'm not going to breathe one single extra breath because of bad luck or good luck. Every single day numbered by God. I've got some quotations in the front of my Bible, just things I like to think about sometimes. Famous Christians have said, David Livingston said, I am immortal till my work is accomplished. That's a good quote. 
His big God theology was practical for his living. And he knew the truth of Psalm 139 that I am immortal. You can't touch me, in effect, until my work on earth is accomplished. That is, that is good. You should pay double for this sermon before you leave. <laughs> Think about the implications in your living. Think about the implications in your dying. Think about the implications for your children. And the context here, by the way, is not fatalism. This is not philosophical fatalism. In philosophy, fatalism is impersonal. This is not that. Christianity is not fatalistic. Sovereignty of God is not fatalistic because God is personally involved. Read Psalm 139. Sovereignty, not fatalism. It's also not saying you shouldn't use common sense and you should be irresponsible. There's plenty in the Bible about wisdom. But it is saying what it's saying, and I'm so glad that it's saying what it's saying. If you've never, if you're a parent, and not all of you are, if you're a parent, if you've never talked to your spouse about these things as it would relate to your children, I suggest you do. If I could be so bold. might help with some bitterness later that is not necessary. That your little ones won't live a day longer than has been orchestrated by God. It's a good thing to pray for your own soul to understand. Lord, I, you could find yourself saying, Lord, I, I don't know how you use this short little life. Maybe a life that didn't come to term. God, I know that somehow you used this to draw glory to yourself and, and you perfectly fulfilled your will for this little life on earth. And this wasn't bad luck. Some of you have done that. Theology is practical, my friends. For me to hold my own mother who lived a long time, 66 years, lots of birthdays, and to be crying and have her crying and just say, isn't it good that, that, that God has given you all this life and isn't it good that we know that you won't live one day shorter than has been intended by Him or one day longer? And then it was something like, therefore... Let's pray that you can make the biggest splash for the glory of God in the days you do have left. You say, yeah, this is right. This is good. Not one day longer. We need to be reminded of these things. Too many times we Christians are acting like pagans. We don't die well. We don't live well. And we don't have to be like that. so love that reality that this God cares so much and he's God he's not a genie he's God and so he can sovereignly do things days are numbered talk to your kids about this if you have them how about that maybe you don't want to talk to them about it about you personally 
But make sure they know these truths. Be a good gift for you to give them if you're a Christian. So when you're gone, they don't have to be bitter. They can be sad. They don't have to be bitter. Isn't God good for giving us mom for this many years? Or dad? Or whoever it might be? Write these things down, maybe. It's all grounded in theology, the sovereignty of God here. Verse 17 is an appropriate response. It says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! This is so good. I'm, this is so valuable. How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they, they, they are more than the sand. I, I awake and I'm still with you. He's awestruck. He's, he's, he's enamored by this reality. We don't know exactly what the end of verse 18 means. There's all kinds of debate. We understand what 17 means. We understand what 18 means. But then he says, I awake and I'm still with you. It may very well be he's carrying the thought of verse 18. If I were to count how great your thoughts are and, and, and how great this reality is, they are more than the sand, so they can't be counted. I awake and I'm still with you. If I try to categorize and if I try to catalog and if I try to count these many blessings I have because of who you are and how great you are and how I'm trusting in you, you know what? I can't even stay awake. And when I wake up, I still think you're great. They're uncountable. This reminds me of Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. It's so good, but I can't get my mind around it. And if he couldn't get his mind around it, I don't think you can either. And I don't think I can either. And I think if I think I can get my mind around it, I haven't got my mind around it, regardless of what I think. How's that for a sentence? <laughs> I can't get my mind around preaching it. We should be going deep enough in the deep end of the pool, time to get out of the kiddie pool, deep enough in the deep end of the pool that we would find ourselves having our minds swimming, going, what in the world? God is greater than I ever even imagined. I can't even imagine this, but I'm encouraged. Number four, a fourth life-changing observation about the greatness of God as it relates to my life and to your life. The Lord deserves complete loyalty from me. You could just abbreviate loyalty. The tone changes. Some of you are going to think, what did you do with that good passage? I promise you I'm reading from the Bible. I'm not changing it. The tone changes because now he's talking about allegiance and alliance this is called an imprecatory section where it calls upon the judgment of God. Look what it says in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. And if you have whiplash, you're thinking, what, what did you just do? What was David thinking? What in the world? It was so good. And you had to spoil it? No. 
We don't know the exact circumstance David is in to call upon this to happen. No doubt there's warfare involved and there are national battles going on because of Israel. But we can understand what it means, and it means this. It means allegiance. It means devotion. God, if you care about me like this, that you know me and you have a plan for me and you're so caring and gracious and kind, you know how I feel about your enemies? They're my enemies too. God, I am on your side. And I hate those who hate you. That's what he's saying. I'm against them. This is the natural response. If God has done this, you're on His side, you're committed to Him. And all the nations battling against Israel saying, let's wipe out Israel because then we'll show everyone that their God is weak and stupid. And David says, I know you're not weak and stupid. And so those who say that you are, I'm against. I'll do battle with them. It's allegiance. That's what he's calling for. It's a good response. It's a right response. It's a radical response. Then 23 and 24. Don't close your Bible quite yet. Let's look at these. I think this is a call for motives to be right. It's one thing to say you hate someone in the name of God, but it's also a dangerous thing. I think he's balancing the danger here in verse 23 by saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Interesting, he starts with by saying, God, you know me, and now he's saying, God, know me. Maybe even here when it comes to motive. Help me, God. Now, before we're done and before you close your Bible... I just want to make a, an inter, I think is an interesting, what is an interesting observation. Oh, before we get to that, application to all of this is be impressed with God. <laughs> okay? Don't ask for practical and not theological because that's helpless and hopeless. Ask for theology, demand theology to the point where David even says, this is precious to me. I would love it if someone were to say, give me more theology. It's what I value because that's really what gets me through the tough stuff. Stop giving me ditties, Pastor. That'd be great. So application is, be increasing in the knowledge of God and see that it really is practical to your life. Now let's make that last observation. Verse 23 is very intriguing because... David, of all people, says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's a really dangerous thing to pray. David, who says in Psalm 51, in sin his mother conceived him, he's a sinner by nature. And now he's asking God to, to look inside and to, to somehow evaluate his motives. And that would be like the most stupid thing any unbeliever could ever do. If you're not a believer, if you've not trusted in God and his righteousness for your own atonement, don't ever pray that prayer. It would just be dumb. 
you, you don't need to add insult to injury. Okay, God already knows you're a sinner, and now you're saying, God, please look at my motives. Well, guess what? They're bad. Don't do it. And I bring this up because I don't think David is asking this as an unbeliever. David knows that he is a sinner, that he is a spiritual rebel, that he has violated the commandments of God, that he doesn't deserve to be known by God in a good sense. But having received forgiveness, having received righteousness from God based upon God's own perfect works of righteousness, ultimately, forthcomingly, through Christ, he can say this. He can say this. If he's a child of God who's received the righteousness of God and he's been forgiven by God, he has the Spirit of God, he can now ask for God to help him with his motives. We're not going to take the time to go there, but you could jot down Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And in Romans 4, 6 to 8, David is used as the example of the one who has his sins covered and whose sins are not held against him. David is used in Romans chapter 4 as an example of someone who needed righteousness from outside of himself, and he received that righteousness from God by faith. And David was forgiven so that he would be acceptable to God. Then he can say, as a believer, God, help me with my motives. Help me with my motives. I bring that up just to make the point, I hope, clear. This is the expression and worship in Psalm 139 of a Christian or a believer, somebody who's trusting in Christ, righteousness credited by faith, and then you're ready to, to, to say, God knows me in a caring, personal way to the point where I know, I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm in a right relationship with God, that I would be so bold as to say, God, scour my motives. That's where we want to be. But if you're not there, it's still where you want to be. You go to Christ for His perfect righteousness that he accomplished by living a perfect life obeying the law the law that you break and the law that I break by going to the cross and atoning for our sins securing our forgiveness by rising again from the dead then you're ready to meet this God and you're on his team so to speak you're on his side you're not the enemy of God anymore and you can say God knows me and we're friends and then when you're trying to do the right thing by even expressing allegiance to this God against those who would oppose Him, you're even saying, God, I'm not sure of my motives here. Please help me with my motives. That's the Christian way to act. Well, let's end on that. Father, thank You for this morning and thank You for the opportunity we have to talk about how great You are and by Your grace, how greatly You care for sinners like us. We are thankful for Christ, for His righteousness. We are thankful that David ultimately was trusting in the one who would come and provide righteousness for him, even as we learn in Romans chapter 4. You are so kind and gracious to us and patient with us. Uh, help us as a church and help us as individuals, if we're Christians, to cling to Christ and to be impressed with his greatness to the point where it, it helps us to deal with the big and challenging issues of life 
And Lord, for those who are not Christians, that you would bring about conviction of sin and that they would want to come and not only know the living God, but to be known in a personal and caring way by the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.